Again, it's great having every one of you here with us this morning, and I want to encourage you to be back next Sunday, but be certain that you bring some people with you. Uh, a lot of times when we invite people to come to church, and I've been mentioning to you for the last couple of weeks, that during this time of the year, people are more prone, study after study, study have indicated this, that people are more prone to come to church to say yes to an invite during the Christmas season than any other time of the year. So I want you to do your very best work this week. When you go back to your jobs tomorrow or you go back to school tomorrow or you see your neighbors or you have family members or friends that are on church, I want you to do your very, very best to get them here next week. And the reason being is I want to share a, a special message next week, and, and I'm simply calling it the greatest gift you'll ever get, the greatest gift you'll ever get, and it's a salvation message. And it's one of those messages, I'm just saying to you, that you're going to want to invite. If you know people that do not know Jesus, if you know people that are far from God, if you've got people that you love, that they're, they're not yet uh, surrendered to Christ and his purpose for their life, uh, they don't have a church home, a church family, I want you to do everything you can to get them here next week. We're going to be doing all Christmas music. The kids are going to be having a wonderful time. I shared that with you earlier, but I want you to get them here for the message. It's really, really important. And don't stop at just one invitation. If you just put all of your eggs in one basket and you invite one person or one family and they don't come, then you don't have anybody with you next week at church. So invite two or three or four or five or however many it takes. And then if they shock you and all of them show up, well, then that's going to be a wonderful thing. And, you know, it's, it's not like you've got to take, you know, take them all to lunch. And, you know, you don't have to do it. If you want to do it, you can do it, but you don't have to. So you just get them here. And we're going to be tra trusting God. I'm going to be praying with you and for you and for those you're going to bring with you next week. Now, for the past two weeks, we've been talking about those areas in our lives that we need to leave behind once and for all. And this is what we're saying. We are saying this. We will not allow these things to continue to cling to our lives another Christmas. We're just not going to do it. We're not going to carry it into another Christmas. We're not going to carry it over into a new year. We're not going to allow it to sneak back into our mind or heart at any other point in the future. And so we've been talking about that and some of those things we want to leave behind. Uh, we've been doing that for the last couple of weeks. If you happen to have missed either one of those weeks, you can just go to the church's website. Uh, both of those messengers are online. You can, uh, you can watch them or download them, listen to them in podcasts. So I uh, just want you to be fully informed on what we've been talking about. Now, this morning, I want to talk to you about, and this is going to be so important for us to hear, and we don't think about this a lot because we don't think about words a lot, uh, but I want to talk to you about the power of words, the power of words, and how that, and going beyond that, how that there may have been some language that you in your lifetime, maybe recently, maybe some, uh, some reach back, but you've been on the receiving end of some language, and it's, maybe it was hurtful and painful to you, but how that by God's grace that you're going to be able to leave those painful words behind. And friends, I want to say to you right up front, before we get into the depth of what we're going to be talking about, I want you to realize this, that you or I should never, ever underestimate the power of words. Words are powerful. Do you believe that? Words can be used for great good, or words can be bad. Words can be used by God to bring healing to a person's life, or they can be destructive. Words can inspire people to further reaches of greatness, our words can do great damage. 
In fact, I want you to check out on the screen this brief verse from Proverbs 18, 21. It's the first part of verse 21. In fact, I'd like for you to read it with me. Let's all read uh, this portion of the verse together. Are you ready? We'll read it through a couple of times. Everybody, 100%, let's read it. The tongue can bring death or life. Now, a lot of you have seen that a verse or a variation of that verse many times before, but it is so absolutely accurate. Let's read it one more time. The tongue can bring death or life, and, and that's going to happen. And I think it's very important that you and I would remember. Maybe this is one of those verses that we would want to etch into our memory and remember the next time we get ready to speak to our, our child. Um, you know, the reality is sometimes we just get impatient. And sometimes in the heat of the moment, we say things we should not say. And this is something good to keep in mind when you're going to speak to your children. Because how many of you know this? Kids can drive you crazy. How many of you know that? Kids can make you lose your mind. Uh, Dr. Ke uh, Kevin Lehman uh, has written a, a, a book. It's entitled, it's a great book if you've never read it. He does a lot of work. By the way, if you happen to be a part of a blended family, he's done some of the most incredible work on blended families that I've ever read in my life. But he's written a book on um, how to make children mind without losing yours. And, and it's an incredible book. And, you know, I don't have to worry about that in regards to my grandchildren. I mentioned to you that, uh, you know, my mother-in-law passed away. That service was on Wednesday. And a great distraction during a painful time was having <clears throat> my two little granddaughters who had flown down with their father. And so uh, late Monday night on the way to Georgia, I pulled up to the Orlando airport, and uh, their flight had arrived a little bit earlier than was planned which uh, you thank God for that. You know, how many of you, that's so much better than, uh, you know, sitting on the tarmac for about 20 minutes waiting to take off. So they got there a little bit early. So they were out front uh, when I pulled up, and it was just, you have no idea, or you probably do if you're a grandparent, what it felt like to see two little girls running down the sidewalk, pow, 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 and, and just be able to have them there and love on them have them as a distraction, and, and they were animated and energetic. In fact, one day, Landry, who turns two, actually today, and her dad said, we need to fly back Saturday, which they did, because if I wait till Sunday, she'll be two, and I'll have to pay for her seat then rather than be free. He does have some of his dad's DNA in him, obviously. And so the girls were just hard to get to sleep. And so Landry, who's turning two today, um, was told, it's time for your nap. You've got to get a nap. It's important that you get a nap. And she's like, okay. And she laid her head down on the pillow, and she closed her eyes, and she kept her eyes shut for about 10 seconds. Then she lifted her head, opened her eyes, and said, good morning. <laughs> but we were not fooled. Well, we need to remember when we're speaking to our kids or grandkids or to a student or to an employee, or someone that is easily influenced, we need to remember that our words, in fact, words in general, are so forcible that they can speak life to someone, or they can utterly devastate them. And a lot of you, I'm not telling you anything that you do not already know, because this has been your own firsthand experience. Now, here's what I want to do, the angle I want to take with this talk for the next few moments. Although it would be very important 
and would be necessary to talk about our words. What are the kind of words that we're speaking? What is our language like? Are we, do we speak life-giving words or destructive words? And that would be important. That would be necessary. But instead, I want to take a different slant. And I want to focus this morning, and I think this is going to help a lot of people that are here. I want to focus on words that you have been subjected to. Not words that you have spoken, but words that have been spoken to you or about you. Words that maybe have been uh, negatively impactful in your own life. Words that have stung you. Words that have hurt you. Words that have afflicted you. Maybe words that has impacted your life for many, many years. And, and you're just carrying it around. And what I'm saying, with God's help and with God's grace, you don't have to keep carrying that around any longer. And that's what we're talking about during this series. How do we leave behind shame? In this case, how do we leave behind painful, hurting words that have been spoken to us? Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate I didn't have perfect parents by any stretch of the imagination. My parents had problems, and my parents had challenges. My parents actually had marriage problems, and they actually went through a divorce uh, when I was 14 years of age. And, uh, but I had, I had great parents. Uh, my mom went home to be with Jesus this past January, 11 months ago. Dad, a few uh, months prior to that, and I know for a fact that they're in heaven. I didn't have perfect parents, but I had good parents. And uh, I can't ever remember hateful words that they spoke to me. But at the same time, I realize that my situation is not the same as it is for many people because I've talked to enough people over the years to know that you have probably, many of you in this room right here, right now, have heard some pretty painful things said to you uh, by people in your life, friends in your life, uh, influences in your life, authorities in your life, maybe even your own parents. Maybe at some point in your life you've been told, hey, you're pathetic. You're never going to amount to anything. You're a loser. Maybe people have told you, maybe not your parents, but other people have said to you, I hate you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. You are stupid. You are ugly. Uh, I, I want you to know that I wish that you had never been born. And friends, if you've ever heard anything like that or a variation of it, I want to just say it does not matter how strong you are. Those kind of words are heavy, and they can deliver lots of harm and lots of pain. And if you've heard any of those things, and a lot of you have, and I'm so sorry that you have. That's unfortunate. It grieves me to think that some of you have heard those kind of things. You're pathetic. You're a loser. I hate you. Wish I'd never had you. You're never going to amount to anything. You're dumb. You're stupid. You're ugly. You're never going to do any. I mean, that is so grievous to me to even think about it. But I do want to say this because I think you need to hear it. If you've ever heard any of those things or some form of other cutting words, then if you are not extremely careful, here's what will happen. You will own that label personally, and you will live as though it were totally true about your life. You may even have been carrying around in your life for months, maybe years, this thought, what they have said to me or what they have said about me must be accurate. That must be who I am. So you sort of claim that label, you own that label, and you say, well, obviously it is. I've heard it enough to believe it now. I've believed what I've been told for so long, so obviously that is who I am, and there's nothing that I can do to change it, and I'm here to say to you today, there is something that you can do to change it, and you'll be able to do it by the grace of God, and I want to tell you how that that can happen, and in order to do so, I want to take you for a few brief moments uh, back to a place uh, in the Bible 
in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis, to quite possibly a text, a passage that you have never thoroughly examined before, but I want to talk about it because I think that this is going to be something that you and I need to see. Now, in this very first book of the Bible, there's all kinds of things going on, and we're not going to chase those trails this morning. I want to just take you, uh, picking up around chapters 28 and 29, and I'll just take you to verse uh, uh, to cha- into chapter 35. For just won't take me long, but I want you to get the story here. One of the key characters of the story that is playing out in this section of Genesis is a guy by the name of Jacob. Jacob. And Jacob, it so happens, is very, and this is an understatement, but let me just say it the way he was, the way it was. He was very, very interested in this very good-looking girl. Her name is Rachel. And he sees her, and he's like, oh, man, unbelievable. I mean, he's just sort of awestruck by just her obvious beauty. And this is how the Bible, now, this is my, not my description. And you may, say, you may be thinking, that is not really in the Bible. The Bible wouldn't even say anything like that. But if you don't believe me, you can check it out after the service. Just go to Genesis 29, 17, and this is what it says about Rachel. It said that she had a lovely figure and was beautiful. I mean, this is one good-looking gal in every way. Uh, she is a good-looking gal, and Jacob is madly in love with Rachel, and Jacob wants to marry Rachel, and he sets his heart on that. And, he, you know, he's, he's going to court her. He's going to impress her. He's going to do whatever he can because he wants to win over the love of Rachel. And she's a wonderful girl, and it just happens to him in his case. And as the Bible says here in 2917, that she happens to be really good-looking, and she has a great figure. That's what the Bible says. Now, he is so madly in love with her, he's willing to do whatever necessary in order to marry her. So he approaches Laban. Laban is the father of Rachel. And Jacob's is like really excited. He's like, I got to have this girl. I'm madly in love with her. I want to marry her. I want to spend the rest of my life with her. So Jacob goes to Laban and he says, What do I have to do in order to win the hand of your daughter in marriage? Because I want to marry Rachel. And Laban says to him, I'll tell you what you can do. If you really want to marry Rachel, then here's what you can do. You can work for me for seven years. Work for me for seven years. And some of you guys are saying, count me out. She can't be that good looking. Seven years. Work for me for seven years. And you know what Jacob says? You got it. No big deal. That's easy. Seven years? And maybe he even whispered to himself, I'd work a whole lot longer than seven years for Rachel as hot as she is. Seven years? Oh, count me in. And I want you to listen to the language. Uh, Later in that chapter, about three verses down, uh, chapter 29 still, but verse 20, it said, but they, speaking of the seven years, listen to the language. Uh, Some of you who are hopeless romantics, this language will attract your attention. But they, speaking of the seven years, seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that something you'd see in a card? Rachel, I worked seven years for you, but it only seemed like a few days. Now, it gets really squirrely right here. I mean, this, I mean, you, how, many of you, how many of you know, how many of you know the Bible is so incredibly honest about things? 
you know, that's, that's how you know that it was written by God because, you know, if it had been written by men, men would have cleaned the Bible up a little bit. All right? They would have just, uh, the men would have just said, I wouldn't have said that. I wouldn't have left that in there. I'm, all right, so let me tell you what happens. So he's like, seven years, no problem. Rachel is so hot, I'll work longer than that. Seven years, you got it, and he goes to work. And so he works for Rachel's hand in marriage for seven years, but then Laban does not give Rachel to Jacob. He actually does the old switcheroo. Rachel has a sister, Leah. And Leah's not like Rachel, Rachel, and that's all I'm going to say about that. I'm just going to leave it right, right there, but um, not like Rachel. And so this, and I want to just sort of ask the guys in here, I'll just sort of ask the guys, how do you feel about what happens next? All right, guys, listen, hang in. You ladies, certainly you can join, but I, especially, I want to get the emotional reaction of you guys. At the end of seven years, Laban does not give his daughter Rachel to Jacob. Instead, he gives to him Rachel's sister Leah. And according to this, I read it, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, a, I've read the Bible. I've taught the Bible for many years. I'm not the lead authority on, on the Bible, not even in this room, because there's people seated here right now that know more about the Bible than I do. But uh, as I understand it, when I read and try to capture the language and the context of what is going on here, on his wedding night, on the first um, night of his honeymoon, Jacob does not even realize that the old switcheroo has occurred. He thinks he's with Rachel. He thinks he's going to wake, wake up to Rachel. Now, I'm reading. I'm reading the language just as it is. want to know how you guys feel about this. This is verse 25 in chapter 29, and this is all it says. Six words. When morning came, there was Leah. Hello? Where's Rachel? What's going on here? Hello? Um, how'd you get here? What happened? Now, how many of you guys, that would be, we talked early on in this series about being easily, how many of you know that, that would be offensive? That would just, that would make you so spitfire mad, you'd be all in Laban's face saying, what in the world? You, on my wedding night, on my first night of my honeymoon, you, you kept Rachel from me. I worked for you seven years, and you sent Leah, and, and now she's my wife. We've consummated the relationship, and now she's my wife, and I, I you know, Leah's a nice girl. She is, and she, you raised her well. Well, but I didn't want Leah. I wanted Rachel. And so Laban says, you wanted Rachel? Absolutely. Why did I work seven years? Have you lost your mind? I wanted Rachel. And I still want Rachel. He says, how about seven more years? Now, how many of you know? How many of you know? Listen, it'd be tempted to say, forget you. Forget four. I mean, really? Seven? And it seems like only a few days, but you've done this. Now I'm, I've got, now Leah's my wife, and she's not even the daughter of yours that I really wanted in the first place. Now you're saying to me, seven more years. But Jacob is so madly in love, he's like, you got it. Seven more years, nothing. I'll do it. Now that's love. Would you not agree with that? Fourteen years. He invested and worked for Rachel. And finally, after the end of that seven years, the total now of 14, they are married, and Rachel wants a baby big time. She just wants a baby. By this time, and I'm not going to go into the whole story, um, 
but Jacob, you know, has children with Leah, and you can sort that out later on your own, or see an Old Testament theologian on how all that. And so now there's Rachel, and so Leah is able to have children, but Rachel is not. And the more that she thinks about that, the more that Rachel wants to have kids, and she eventually does. She eventually has a son and is very excited about that. Now there's a second pregnancy, and she's about to give birth, and this is where I want to pick up. Now we jump over from chapter 29 to chapter 35, and I want you to pay very, very careful attention as to what is going to happen next because you're, you're wondering, what does this have to do with my life? And I'm about to show you where. All right, verse 16. The guys are going to put it up on the screen right here right now because I want you to see it. It says, then they, they being Jacob and Rachel, moved on from Bethel while they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. She's in labor and there's complications with her pregnancy. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't be afraid for you have another son. You're about to give birth to your second boy. As she breathed her last, now what does that mean? Talk to me, what does it mean? As she breathed her last, she dies, Rachel dies. And this is horrible. I mean, you think about Jacob for just a moment. I'm going to do a timeout, and then we're going to come right back to this. You think about how grievous this must have been for how, just, just how heartbroken that Jacob is. He loves Rachel. He, lo- he doesn't hate Leah, but he is madly in love and has been for more than 14 years, a lot longer than that, actually, with Rachel. And now he and Rachel are having children together. And he loves Rachel. This is the love of his life. This is his best friend. This is his soulmate. And now here they are about to celebrate the birth of their second child together. And now things are so difficult in this pregnancy. This very, very, something tragically goes wrong. Now you and I know that circumstances today with the uh, advancement of modern medicine, maybe this situation could have been completely overted. Uh, Most of you know that our grandson, Brody, who is just a little bit over a month now. You know the story. You were praying, which we appreciated, that uh, Brody, when he was just a few hours old, he is perfectly healthy. Everything went good with the delivery, everything about the birth. For about four hours, he was a perfectly healthy little boy, and then he had a pulmonary hemorrhage. For reasons that are still unexplainable, uh, his little lungs began to fill up with, with blood. And, um, you know, then he was put on a ventilator and, and, you know, and I kept you informed everything that was going on with him. Now, here's what the doctors said. The doctor said, had the same thing happened 30 years or more ago that happened to Brody just a little over a month ago, that the survival rate for a child would have been 0%. So you think about the reality, and that's just 30 years ago that had this same thing happen not only to Brody, but to any newborn little boy or little girl, the the rate of survival would have been 0% just 30 years ago. Anybody in this room 30 or over, you would not have survived that. And you think about how profound that is. And so there was no emergency C-sections. There was no uh, other means. And she breathed her last for she was dying, and as she's dying, just before she breathed her laugh, it said that she named her son, what is it, Benoni, Benoni. But this is very unusual. This is unusual, but his father, who's his father? Who's Benoni's father? Who is it? Jacob, but Jacob, his father, named him Benjamin. And I know what you're thinking. Well, what's going on with that? 
I mean, you would have thought, you would have thought that here in the dying moments, and you've got to understand just how sad, how wrecked emotionally that Jacob was, the love of his life, the girl that he was willing to work 14 years, this beautiful girl that he wanted to spend the rest of his life with, here she is having their second child together, and this should have been been a celebratory occasion, but instead she is dying, and in the last few moments of her life, she says, let's name him Ben-Oni. And Jacob says, let's name him Benjamin. Now, why does that matter? Now, I think it is important to bring this into play, all right? Bring this into play that Jacob was a guy that was very familiar with name changes. You see, his name was Jacob, and then you read in the Bible that he, uh, one time he, he wrestles with, uh, the, with an angel, with God, and uh, it says that he, and this is found back just three chapters earlier in chapter 2, we're told that Jacob wrestles with God, and then in verse 28, it says that God speaks to him, and he says to Jacob, your name will no longer be Jacob, but from this point forward, your name is going to be what? Any of you remember? Israel. Israel. The father. The father, the patriarch of the 12 nations, the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes. And uh, the proliferation of that found throughout the Bible is just utterly amazing. So this is a guy that knows something about name changes. And in her dying moments, Rachel, the love of his life, says, let's name our little boy Ben-Oni. And he says, honey, I think we should call him Benjamin. Now, why does that matter? And here's where it matters. And maybe you've never seen this in the Bible before, all right? Ben-Oni actually means son of my sorrow. Son of my sorrow. And that made perfect sense. If you're Rachel, this is son of my sorrow, isn't it? You're giving birth to a little boy that you're never going to be able to raise. You're never going to be able to feed. You're never going to play with him. You're never going to watch him go off to school. You're never going to spend, you know, time with him. You're not going to see his toddler years. You're not going to see him grow up. And so it only made sense. It is entirely sensible that in those dying moments that Rachel would say, let's name him Ben-Oni because he is the son of my sorrow But Jacob says, not Ben-Oni, let's not give him that name. Let's instead name him Benjamin. And Benjamin does not mean, of course, son of of my sorrow. It means son of my right hand. Now, what does that matter? You follow this in the Bible. I know I'm giving you a lot right here, but then we're going to jump back into what we've been talking about. When you follow the meaning of right hand in the Bible, it is not only symbolic of strength, but it is also a symbolic of blessing. Jacob is saying in those moments, Let's not put that label on him. Let's not call him. And, and he understood it. And he's crying, I'm sure, weeping, agonizing. But honey, let's not call him son of my sorrow. Let's give him son of blessing. Here's a reality check for all of us. I want you to hear me very carefully. We do not get to choose what comes into our life, but we do get to choose how we're going to react to it. Can I say that again? You are not going to get to choose everything that happens in your life. There are going to be some things that are going to happen in your life that you did not get to choose, that you would have chose. You didn't choose 
to, to, you didn't choose to go through a divorce. You didn't choose to lose a loved one. You didn't choose to lose a child. You didn't choose to lose a parent. You didn't choose to lose a spouse. You didn't choose to lose a job. You didn't choose to go bankrupt. You didn't choose for your health to be diagnosed with a terminal. You didn't choose those things. In fact, you would have chosen just the opposite. You do not get to choose. I do not get to choose everything that comes into our life, but we do get to choose how we react to it. We do not get to choose everything that impacts our life, but we do get to choose whether we drag it around for the rest of our lives or if we lay it down beginning today and we say, I'm not going to carry this into another Christmas season. I'm not going to carry this over into a new year. And I, I want you to know, friends, and I want you to hear what I'm saying to you. And I don't have a lot of time left, but I want you to hear what I'm saying right now. Why don't you just go ahead and determine right now today that you're going to allow God to heal and to change your life. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know. I don't know. My life has not been a perfect life. I shared with you already that my parents, who I dearly love, and I had, in fact, I never even knew that my parents had marriage problems. You know when I knew my parents had marriage problems? When they sat down in the living room with us one night and said, we're getting a divorce. That's when I knew. I, I didn't choose for my granddaughters last summer to move to Illinois, which I know that what, that, that obviously could not have been God's will for their lives. It, that could... I, don't, I, I think it was God's will for them to still be living 2.5, and I say that jokingly. You know, that's, that's God's will, and they had to go with their parents, and I'm trying to still get over that. I thought they should have stayed with their grandparents personally. But, uh, man, that was hard. And then that's July, and then September, my dad passes away. Four months later, my mom passes away. Uh, here, here we are now, just... Not too long, 11 months later, my mother-in-law, you don't, you don't get to choose. I don't get to choose. You don't get to choose what life brings your way, but you do you just get an opportunity to choose how you're going to react to it. And I'm just saying, why don't you just say, God, here's what I want you to do. I want you to heal me. I want you to change me. God, I'm not going to spend, and this is what you've got to love about the story of Rachel and Jacob, and you understand the implications of it all, but you understand why Jacob's saying, let's not label him child of sorrow, let's instead, let's let him go through the rest of his life, not as child of sorrow, but as child of blessing. Why don't you choose today that you're not going to go through the rest of your life feeling like you're a loser, but instead you're going to be a victor. That you're going to say, I'm not going to spend the rest of my days here on planet Earth, no matter how long that is, as being a person that is defeated. Instead, I want to be a conqueror. I am not going to be a failure. My life will not be a failure. I have hope, and I have purpose, and I have destiny, and I have dreams, and I'm not going to be a failure, but I recognize that personally speaking, I am a chosen child of a most high God, why don't you claim it for yourself? I am not child of sorrow. I am a child of God that brings great blessings with it. Are you with me on that? Great blessings into my life. I need, the, that's what you need. That's what you, you and I want. And there may be many of you who are right now saying, well, you know what, Jeff? My problem is not really being labeled by people. I've got a bigger problem than that. I'm being harassed by the devil. How many of you ever feel harassed by the devil? If you don't, let me just say, if you never feel harassed by the devil, I would be more concerned about that than being harassed. Because if the devil's not trying to knock you off track, I just wonder what track you're on. If he's trying to knock you off track and harass you and hinder you and everything, you probably know you're pretty much going in the right direction because he is trying to be an obstacle in your life in every way and prevent you from accomplishing God's purpose and design for your life. I want you to take a look right here at John chapter 10 and verse 10. The guys are going to put it up on the screen. 
John chapter 10 and verse 10 says this, the thief, and that's Satan, that's the devil, the enemy. He comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus is the one speaking here, so it's Jesus who says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I want you to know this morning, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I do want you to know, because I don't know what your theological background and framework is, but I want you to know, and I believe it with all of my heart, that the devil is not some harmless harmless being. He is not some mythological character that is uh, portrayed simply in in movies or Halloween costumes. Uh, Satan is a real person that hates you. You need to understand that he's not your friend. He is your foe. He hates you. He hates everything about you because you belong to God. And this is what Satan, and some of you need to hear this. Your problem is not people labeling you. It's the devil harassing you. And this is what you need to know is his attempt. This is what Jesus said in John 10, that he wants to steal, kill, and destroy He wants to steal your peace and your joy. He wants to kill your body. He wants to destroy your identity in Jesus and God's purpose for your life. And one of the primary schemes that he has and will always use is falsehood and deception. And just so you know, another major distinction between God and the devil is this. God cannot tell a lie. Satan cannot speak the truth. My uh, mother-in-law just did her eulogy. Uh, In that eulogy, the family eulogy, at her service on Wednesday, I just mentioned some of the things that, the phrases that she has been known for over the years. Here's here's a phrase that she was known for that we remembered. I I shared this with somebody out in the lobby a few moments ago. Uh, My brother-in-law got into uh, lots of trouble, and and he was raised in the same era that I was back in the days. Any of you happen to remember the days when kids got beat? Any of you remember the days when kids got beat? And then that was the era he was raised in. His mom said, this is her words, and I've never forgotten. She said, his name is Al. She said, I would still be beating Al if my chest hadn't stopped, started hurting. I'd still be beating him. The only thing that stopped me, and of course, she said it laughing and joking, but she was just so frustrated. And you know why she was often frustrated with him? Because he wouldn't always tell the truth. And he had lied. She hated above everything else a lie. In fact, I heard her say one time in, in uh, describing somebody, whoever it was, she said, because she just hated lying, she said that person would rather, this is her words, this is sort of her vernacular, she said they would rather climb a 30-foot tree and tell a lie than to stand flat on the ground and tell the truth. I, I don't know that I fully understand it except to determine that she didn't like lying. And God cannot tell a lie, but Satan cannot speak the truth. So everything the devil tells you about you, you need to believe just the opposite. If he tells you you're worthless, you need to believe just the opposite. If he tells you you're defeated, you need to believe just the opposite. Look at, look at John 8, 44. Look at it right here on the screen. John 8, 44, it says, it's talking about Satan, the devil. He has always hated the truth. Because there is no truth in him. Think about that. The antithesis of that. God is the embodiment of all truth, but but Satan has no truth in him. In fact, look at this next part, this next sentence. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is, read the rest of it with me, everybody, for he is a liar and what? The father, the king daddy of all us. Our enemy, and you need to know this, is a notorious liar. 
And he wants you to believe the exact opposite of what God thinks about you. You know what the devil will tell you? See, some of you don't have to worry about people labeling you. You're pathetic. I wish I'd never had you. You're a loser. You're stupid. You're ugly. Um, You're never going to amount to anything. You're worthless. That's that's not your issue. It's the issues, the lies, the lying words the enemy is speaking into your life. And he lies to you about what God thinks about you. You know what the devil will tell you? The devil will tell you that God hates you. (laughs) The devil will tell you that God is finished with you. Done. No more. He's had it. He's done. He's wiped his hands. He wants no more of you. The devil will tell you that God is against you. He will tell you that God considers you to to be beyond forgiveness. You would never, it would rattle your mind if I told you how many different times somebody has come to me, and this is what they've said to me. They've said to me in a meeting, over the phone, in an appointment, they've looked at me, and they said, you know what, Pastor Jeff, I am so afraid. I'm like, what are you afraid of? They are so afraid that I have, this is what they say, I am so afraid that I've committed of the unpardonable sin. I've done something that God cannot forgive me about. And we have a chance to talk about that. And um, generally, I'm not going to delve into all that I would say because time, but basically I say this. If you've worried, (laughs) if you're worried about you have committed the unpardonable sin, trust me, you have not. Because if you had, you wouldn't care that you had. You have not. But the enemy will try to defeat people and lie to them and say, you're beyond forgiveness. You've gone too far. You're not redeemable. And will tell you that your life is nothing but a waste. And your life has no value, no purpose. And there's not one shred of biblical evidence that any of these things are true. In fact, do you realize that the story and message of Christmas proves otherwise? Because the message and story of Christmas, as I close, is that God loved you enough to send his only son into the world as a baby born to a virgin girl by the name of Mary. And that as a full-grown man, Jesus loved you enough to assume the full weight of every sin that you would ever commit and then die on a cross as your representative and as your substitute. And that you are so outrageously, don't believe the lies of the evil one. Believe instead of what is true. And that as you are so outrageously loved by God, that God rose Jesus from the dead to give you a purpose for living and a place in heaven. So today it's imperative, and you can go ahead and stand because I'm going to pray. You can go ahead and stand. Today it's imperative that you begin to believe what God says about you. God does not hate you. God is not finished with you. God is not against you. God does not consider your sins to be beyond forgiveness. You you are not beyond the, the limits of redeemability. Your life is not a waste. You are not hopeless. You need to believe what God says about you, not the devil. You need to believe that you're a chosen child of the Most High God and not keep carrying around into another Christmas, into another new year, the labels that have been so hurtful and so painful in your life. And if you've not received Jesus, the baby who came at Christmas, who took upon you your entire sin and my sin, and we've put a lot of sin on him, I can't speak for you, but Jesus was so loaded down with so many sins of mine when he went to the cross. Perhaps that's true of you. He loved you enough that he would do it. If you've not yet received him, enter your life as the Savior and the leader of your life. Right here, right now, you could just pray with me. 
God, I want to believe your word. Your word says that you love me. Your word says that you sent Jesus into the world to die for me. Your word says that you will forgive me of my sins. Your word says you will give me a purpose for living my life. And when I die, a reserved spot in heaven. Jesus, there's so much I don't know about you. There's so much I don't know about the Bible. Jeff even shares a story about something I've never even knew was there. And there's a lot I don't know. But I want to get to know you. And I want to invite you to come into my life as the Savior and the leader of my life. And that you would forgive me of all my sins. Give me a purpose for living. Give me a place in heaven. I receive you as my Savior and leader right here today. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. I love you, everybody. Have an awesome week. I'll see you right back here at 930 Christmas Eve.